All right, so today's passage comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other, bo and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's a joy to be with you guys this morning. For those of y'all who don't know me, my name is Taylor Leachman. I am an associate pastor of adult ministry at Christ the King Church in Houston. So why am I here this morning? Um, well, I know a lot of you all, um, and it is a blessing to be here with you guys this morning. For those of y'all who don't know kind of more about me and my family, my, my wife and I were in Austin for seven years. Uh, we moved away to Houston about four years ago for this call uh, to Houston. I'm originally from Houston. But when we moved to Austin, uh, I guess that was almost 10 years ago, or a little over 10 years ago at this point, I was the first youth director uh, at All Saints. Um, some of your kids were in my youth group, um, and uh, those were trying times and wonderful times. Um, and then after that, I was uh, the director of Redeemer Seminary here in Austin, which is no longer a thing. Um, it's completely uh, closed down since then, but uh, it, it has been a blessing. Uh, I guess at the, at the time at which we were moving, Grace and Peace was beginning in sort of seed form and prayer uh, to, be, uh, to be talked about as a church, and it is even more awesome to be here with you guys this morning on a day like today when uh, y'all are finding out about a potential new senior pastor. So, um, I figure let's pray before we start uh, learning more about what Mark has for us in his gospel. Would y'all pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us and that you are not silent. As we consider these words this morning, I pray that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hands and feet to do your will. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit. Amen. How many of y'all have seen uh, or, uh, the show uh, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo? Has anybody been watching that on Netflix? Okay, a few of you look very confused as well. Um, that's okay. It's a great show on Netflix. My wife and I came to the end of whatever we'd been watching, uh, traipsing through on Netflix, and we had nothing else to watch and saw an ad for this new show called Tidying Up, and we thought, we're going to watch it. And apparently, the rest of America has as well, because there's all these fascinating articles that goodwills over the country um, have been swamped with uh, donations from people cleaning out their homes 
um, from items that, that they have determined don't quote-unquote spark joy. For those of you who've seen the show, you get the reference. But for those of you all who haven't seen the show, um, it follows a very similar format to, to all of these sorts of, of home improvement type shows that you see on an HGTV, except this is on Netflix. Right? There's a person or a couple who's in need of tidying up. Although that phrase is a bit of a euphemism, most of the people on the show are absolutely swamped in the chaos of their homes, right? For one of the couples, everything about their life seems to be a challenge, and they're hoping that by tidying up, that they'll be able to save even their relationship, which is obviously getting rocky at this point. So the very first episode, this couple welcomes Marie into their home, and she begins to talk to them about the accumulated clutter that they have and their life patterns, right? With, with pots and pans and utensils and appliances all stacked up on the kitchen counters, with clothes that are exploding out of all of their closets, and, and with a garage that is essentially turned into a warehouse for keeping everything. Marie enters into their lives and vows to take the clutter and the chaos and to make it right and good. She vows to bring order into their world. Marie turns their life upside down merely by tidying up. Surveying the couple's home, Marie's very first words as she enters is this. She speaks to the mess and to them and says, I love a mess. She's almost like a cape crusader against clutter. Right? This couple is struggling, obviously, and they're willing to listen to everything that she has to say, even when she commands them to pause and thank each item of clothing that they're going to give away because they no longer like it. Although she offers some good advice to them, we all know that as we watch a show like this, that in a month, in a year, in five years, the chaos is going to return, right? It might be the clutter itself, or it might be the way that the husband and the wife care for one another and communicate for one, to one another, and it might, be something, it might be something else. We all know that however helpful it is in the moment, Marie's tidying up does not truly defeat the chaos of this couple's lives. It only tidies it up. Wouldn't it be nice if tidying it up were all that it took? If only we could bring wholeness to hurricane victims by tidying up. We could mend broken relationships maybe even or heal those struggling with disease by tidying up. If only that were the answer to the chaos of the world. But it's not. Right? The reality is that whenever true chaos enters our lives, we are deeply affected by it. We often respond to it in deep fear. It almost doesn't matter what form the chaos takes. It can come in the form of physical storms like we just read about, or it can be personal or even interpersonal storms, right? In the, in the good times, we can trick ourselves into thinking that, that when we speak, like Marie spoke to them, when we speak, everybody's going to listen. Even the earth itself is going to listen. When we speak, our hearts maybe even are going to listen and quiet themselves, or the people that we're fighting with somehow are going to listen and everything's going to get better. But what we see in our passage this morning is that there is only one who can conquer the chaos of our hearts and our lives, and he is the king of the story. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. First, we're going to look at the way in which Jesus, conquering of the storm, teaches us more about the kingdom of God and the gospel of Mark. Then we're going to look at the way that this story teaches us who Jesus is, and finally, 
we're going to look at how this story anticipates Jesus' kingdom. So we're going to ask these three questions of the text. What is the context of our story? Who is the king? And what is the kingdom? So first, what is the context of the story? Mark's gospel is very, very fast-paced and is very purposeful. Right? Mark is not merely writing a biography, but rather a theologically shaped narrative centered around answering the question about God's kingdom and his king. Right? That was a fancy way of saying that Mark's, bi- Mark's gospel is a shaped story to teach us about who Jesus is and what he is doing. Although Mark's pacing can feel breathless and his organization disjointed, the overall story of the gospel builds and builds on itself with each new subject. It helps us to better understand the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing. So let's try and paint a picture. I'm going to go very fast-paced from the beginning of Mark until we get to our passage. Right, Mark's gospel begins with the preparation for Jesus. John the Baptist is crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the one who will come after him. Then Jesus is baptized and tempted in the desert. Mark tells no birth narrative. He doesn't give us a story of, of young Jesus in the temple left in Jerusalem. Instead, he moves almost immediately into Jesus' public ministry with his calling of the very first disciples. And also by the very word of his power, beginning to perform some miracles. Jesus' words and his actions are a foretaste of the kingdom. He's demonstrating in a tangible and symbolic way what the kingdom of God is going to be like. Jesus drives out evil spirits. He heals men of leprosy and paralysis. He begins in his time on earth to make all the sad things come untrue, at least for a brief moment. We then see a brief confrontation between Jesus and the well-esteemed religious leaders of the day. They question Jesus, and we see as the readers that we're meant to ask similar questions, right? If this is the messianic hope of the world, then why does his teaching look different than what we expected? Are our own expectations of who Jesus is and what he's going to do, are they different than they should be? Are we trying for and hoping for a Messiah that is in our own image? Are we just like the Pharisees themselves? Jesus continues to call the rest of his disciples. And as his ministry continues, he gathers larger and larger crowds around him. Then right before chapter 4, there's a brief interaction between Jesus and his immediate family. Jesus says that his mother and his brothers are those who whoever keep God's will, whoever does God's will. He's helping us to understand that this new kingdom that he's bringing is a kingdom that we belong to as a new family. And all of these members together are a part of God's family together. Whoever we were before is not as important as who we are now. Thus, it is into that context that we come to chapter 4. What was just a foretaste of Jesus' teaching on the coming of the kingdom is now more fully revealed, which is ironic because Jesus is teaching in parables. Right? We wouldn't naturally think that teaching in parables is a more full revelation of the kingdom of God. But these three parables, which follow one after the other in quick succession right before our story, are about the kingdom of God. 
The first is what we often call the parable of uh, the sower and the seed. Then the next is the parable of the seed growing. And finally, the parable of the mustard seed. And as Jesus preaches and teaches about the kingdom of God, it begins to take root in the disciples' hearts. And as we read it, we as the listeners and the hearers of this story, it is beginning to take root in our own hearts as well. For some of us, it may not grow any fruit, as the parables say, but for many of us, it will grow 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. The kingdom of God is coming. It is like a mustard seed, though. It is tiny, and we don't, we don't know how, but because our God is in control, it will grow. It will grow so large that we will be able to perch in its branches and rest in its shade. But all of this sounds too good to be true. Right? Jesus is promising a kingdom that will bring peace to our hearts and to our world. He's promising a kingdom that will bear fruit and a kingdom that will grow. But if we're honest, we spend much of our day and our week thinking and experiencing a reality in which God does not seem to be in control. Right? We, we prayed for some of those things even this morning. Where chaos rules our inner selves and, and our hearts and our lives. Chaos is what we experience relationally. Chaos is what we experience in our workplace and in our homes and on the streets and the highways between our work and our homes. Chaos is what we experience when we read the news. What is this peace that Jesus is proclaiming? Is he really in control? That's what we feel. And if he weren't really in control, then, then he would do what, what we want and what we expect for him to do. At least that's what we often think, right? If, if he were really in control, then the Jews of Matthew, uh, Matthew 4 or Mark 4 wouldn't be Roman subjects any longer, if he were really in control, then the Jewish people would be following the law of God and would be covenant keepers rather than the covenant breakers that they have been for the thousand years prior to that. That is what the disciples had been thinking. Right? They want clarity of who this Messiah is. They want confidence that they should continue to follow him. He's teaching in parables and he's done some amazing things. But this is all beginning to happen in a way that they don't expect, and they're fearful as a result. How true of us as well, right? We struggle with Jesus, the Messiah. We want more clarity that we're following the right king. We want confidence that Jesus is actually going to do something about the chaos in our hearts and in our world. And in our doubts or even in our unbelief, we attempt to have our own power and our own control. We think, if my heart is still this way, if I'm still struggling with this sin or that behavior, then I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to fix it. I can and I will become the person that I want to be. I'll stop eating this way. I'll stop drinking like that. I'll exercise more. I'll stop yelling at my children. Not that that's any of us here. It's still January, right? What resolutions have you made, right? We tell ourselves, I have the power to change and I'll do it. Or others of us are, are actually in despair because you, you've resolved to change to improve all on your own, but you can't. It's still January and you've already failed, right? And your attempts to be autonomous, you found nothing but despair. 
As we see so clearly in our passage this morning, we cannot be captains of our own souls. We have deep, sincere longings for our life and what it should look like, and we want a Messiah that will help us to get there. Or maybe we have longings for what the world should look like, and because it isn't happening yet, we doubt that Jesus is who he says he is. We begin to fear the things of this world, the broken systems and broken relationships, our inability to change ourselves more than we fear the one who is in charge. And this is the context of our story this morning. It's into that context of mixed emotions and missed dreams that we find ourselves amongst Jesus and his disciples this morning. So with that in mind, let's ask our second question, which is, who is this king? As we look closer at the story, we see that the disciples and Jesus get into a boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We know from chapter 1 that many of the disciples are fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, right? They know the ins and the outs of the water and of their boats. They understand what to do in the midst of the storms. And actually, storms are quite common on the Sea of Galilee, especially in the evening. So they knew exactly what they were getting into. It was easy for this wind to pick up and for the sea to get rough. So as the disciples and Jesus are deciding to go to the other side, they're not ignorant about the potential perils that await them. They know what they're doing, and they believe they can handle anything on their own. We hear in Mark's account that the disciples' um, the disciples' boat is not the only boat on the trip. Right? There are others in the group as well. We don't know much about them, but we do know that the very, the very experienced fishermen, these disciples, are in the boat with Jesus. And Mark focuses in on them and their experience this particular evening. So as they're going across, Jesus moves to the stern of the boat and he falls asleep. Jesus is in, is in a sense reliving the Jonah story, right? As Jonah fell asleep in the midst of unfaithfulness and disobedience on the boat, carrying him away from his calling, Jesus has now fallen asleep on a boat. Although we will see he remains obedient and faithful until the end. So the storm comes and Jesus somehow remains asleep. The wind is howling and the waves are seemingly about to take over the boat, yet somehow Jesus is still asleep. He's at the he is at peace in the midst of this chaos, and the disciples are rightfully freaking out. Right? They are obviously afraid. Their familiarity with boats and the sea led them to believe that they had control over it all, even in the evening when the storms could get even worse and more prevalent. Perhaps they've survived other storms in the past, and they trust themselves. They have it all under control, but this storm is finally too big for them. And they become deeply afraid. And juxtaposed to their fear is Jesus' calm sleep. Somehow he is yet to wake up. So the disciples cry out to him in their fear. And this would normally be the right response, but their tainted motivation for crying out is revealed. Yes, they might believe that Jesus can help, but they don't cry out to him for help. They cry out to him in anger and in fear. They assume that Jesus' lack of response is because he doesn't care. He can help at least a little bit, right? But he's somehow choosing not to. They yell, do you not even care? 
They assume that Jesus' lack of response to the chaos is that he doesn't care about them. And even as they cry out to Jesus, he is still, it is still hard to tell how much they believe that he's actually capable of help. Like they're the experienced fishermen after all, and Jesus is just the son of a carpenter. Right? Is he merely another hand on the boat who, who can help bail out water? We don't really know what their thoughts are, their motivations. On the other hand, is he like Jonah, the very cause of this storm? They need someone to help, but they want it all on their terms. Jesus, wake up and come to my aid. Fix my problems. Change my outcomes. I am perishing in my relationships. I am perishing in my work. I'm perishing in my schoolwork. Listen to me. Don't you care? The disciples turn to Jesus in this moment when they've exhausted the limits of their own resources. If anyone could have handled the little boat in the great storm, it would have been them, but they can't do it. Jesus doesn't meet them in their strength. He sleeps through their strength. Only when they believe they are lost, only when their strength fails, only then does Jesus reveal to them his way and his strength. This could be a big challenge for us. Perhaps not all of us, but I would guess that many of us don't experience the brokenness of our lives and our world in as felt a reality in our day-to-day lives as the disciples are here. Most of us go through our daily lives thinking and believing that our own expertise is good enough to get us through. Maybe not make life perfect, but at least somehow it's going to get us through. We don't need much in the way of help. And if we do, it's more that we need Jesus to be our co-pilot of sorts. We need him to be our encourager. We often fail to recognize that we are as, in as perilous chaos as our disciples were. And that we need Jesus to wake up and rebuke the storms of our hearts, our world, our lives. We need him to step in and say, peace, be still. The good news for us this morning is that he will. And he does. It isn't always what we want. There are times when we need him and it feels like he doesn't care. But he is the one who's in control of all things. Our hearts, our relationships, our lives, and our world. And I think what is so amazing about this story is that Jesus actually listens to the disciples. And he does so in a way that they would never expect. Jesus awakes and rebukes the wind and the wave with a word, he tells the storm to shut up, right? To be quiet, to cease. And just like that, the chaos stops. And it doesn't just revert maybe to a light wind and a calm drizzle. No, it stops completely. There is an entire calm, and that is what makes the disciples truly afraid. It might seem like they're in awe of what Jesus has done. But we... It, But there's more going on here. They are utterly terrified of what Jesus has just done. These men have been with Jesus for some amazing miracles, but they haven't seen anything like this. Jesus stands up from his slumber and rebukes the wind and the waves. And like that, they obey. They listen to Jesus. This is something more than just the healing of a leprous man. This is divine. As the Psalms tell us, it is the Lord 
himself who commands the wind and the sea. So the disciples are terrified because they do not understand this Messiah. He is more than they ever anticipated. He is more than they even want, right? But he's exactly who they need. As Jesus ushers in his kingdom, we get a glimpse that he is the one who is sovereign over all things, even those things over which man has no control. He's sovereign over the wind and the waves. He's the peacemaker over all chaos. Thus the disciples, and subsequently we, get a glimpse at the utter peace and calm that Jesus' kingdom will usher in, which is our third question of the text. What is the kingdom of God? If you're looking for a a brief definition of the kingdom of God, it is this. God's kingdom is his complete and peaceful rule over all of his creation. It comes by way of his conquering king. But this king and kingdom shatter our expectations. Though his kingdom is complete and comprehensive, it has not come in its fullness. We live in the tension Our world produces a lot of fear in us, the fear of brokenness, the fear of sin, the fear of pain and death, and even the fear of fear itself within us and within the world around us, the fear of thinking, Lord Jesus, do you not even care? Do you not see the wind and the waves that are about to destroy me? But one of the dangers we can do and think as Christians is to think that we somehow can control Jesus and that if we just believe enough or pray enough, or live the life that we think he wants us to live, then he will step into our lives and rebuke whatever is threatening us, whatever may be going on from within or from without. That's not the way. That's not to say that we haven't had opportunities or circumstances in our lives where he has truly brought peace and redemption. But Mark's gospel is clear. Jesus has come in the midst of the storm of this world and his calming of the storm is here, and it is a foretaste of what is to come. So we live our lives in light of two very real truths. There is still pain and hurt and brokenness and chaos, and Jesus is in control of it all. And he promises that it will not overtake us. But beyond that, he tells us something amazing, that the day is coming when he will rebuke and conquer all chaos where our hearts will be tamed from sin, where our bodies will be resurrected from death, and where every single part of creation will beam with his glory. And so we can live now in that confidence, and we can stare into the storms and chaos of the world knowing that the day is coming when King Jesus will yell, be quiet, and the whole world will listen and be at peace. As you listen to this sermon, the last thing I want you to hear is either a fatalistic understanding of your circumstances or an overly triumphalistic belief that you will overcome your storms. Neither is true, and that's not what this passage promises. Yes, there is sin and brokenness in the world, but as the Gospel of John tells us, the darkness has not overcome the light and never will overcome it. We have a genuine and a real hope for the future. But at the same time, we live and we struggle. The very things that you are struggling with even now may never leave you on this side of glory. 
But no matter the chaos of your life that you're picturing in your now, in, in your mind right now, Jesus has promised to you this is this this morning. The storm will never overcome you if you place your faith in him. That is true from your greatest strength to your biggest weakness. It may always be a thorn in your side, but if you are in Christ Jesus, he promises that when his kingdom comes in its fullness, you will be made whole. You will be made complete. Let me conclude with this. The promise of the gospel is that if you have your faith in Christ, then the very God who spoke all things into being, the very God who can rebuke a storm with just a word, is the same God who is with you in the midst of your storm, in the midst of your chaos. Shows like tidying up, they finish, they wrap up before it ever gets bad again. So they can leave us with a feeling that somehow tidying up is merely the answer. That that is what we're looking for and that's all that we need. But our passage this morning reminds us it isn't true. One of our longtime family friends is a woman named Lee McElroy. She's an author who published a book a few years ago called The Beautiful Ache. Maybe you've read it. Um, it's about the longings that we have in the midst of a broken world. And it Lee honestly acknowledges the fear that she has and we have in the face of the chaos of our lives. When Lee talks about her book, she often tells a story that it took her agent a year and a half to sell the book. Because apparently no one wants to hear about longing. Right? Everyone wants to hear about the resolution, the satisfaction of the longing, the happy ending. You can't tell about your longings being, uh, you, can't, you can't, sorry, let me go back. The publisher said this to Lee, can't you tell us about the longings being fulfilled in your life? But Lee responds, on the contrary, the longing is enough because the longing is actually what drives her and what drives us to Jesus himself. And that is absolutely true for us this morning. We all have a beautiful ache, so to speak. We all have the chaos that is going on in our lives, the fear that our life is out of control. But allow that this morning to stir something within you and allow that to drive you to Jesus, our beautiful Savior, who is with us and who promises to be with us until he comes again. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you we thank you that you have sent your king and that your kingdom is coming. Well, we thank you for Jesus and what he promises to bring with his kingdom. We promises to bring a true peace, that he is in fact powerful over everything that is going on in this world and in our lives. Father, we pray that we would be patient as we wait for him. And Lord, that as he comes, we pray, Lord, with our longings that we would lean into him by faith. Grant us faith even in the midst of our unbelief, we pray. All of this in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit. Amen.